What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listeners, to the 258th chapter of the QAA podcast, The Pilled in the Peak District, The Crestbrook Dale Saga, Part 1 episode. We are your hosts, Jake Rokotansky, Honey Kelly, Julian Fields, and Travis View. Welcome, my beloved listeners, to another episode about the strange goings-on among the cursed islands of the United Kingdom. To be absolutely precise, this is going to be the first of two episodes, all set around a local conflict happening in a tiny remote village called Cressbrook, Derbyshire. This is a story I've been following for over a year now, since the summer of 2022, but I've been waiting to talk to you about it since it felt to me that the story was still unfolding. Even now, I don't know if the happenings going on in this part of the country have finished exactly, and it may be a story we return to again, but I think it's important to cover all the same. As an example of how conspiracy theories around COVID are very much still with us in this country, even after the political establishment has moved on. Let's begin with the village of Cressbrook itself. Cressbrook sits on the edge of the Peak District National Park, a beautiful area in the North Midlands of England renowned for its vast rolling hills and valleys. Its population is tiny, only around 175 people. Cressbrook is in fact so small and so remote that I might never have heard of it if it wasn't for a direct message I received on Twitter last summer. The message was from a man named Phil. Here's what it said. Hi Annie. Not sure if you've come across Rachel Elnaw, but it's her tribe threatening this awesome piece of the Peak District. Look her up on Telegram. Not quite QAnon, but getting there. I'm one of the group resisting. Happy to tell you more. Thank you. The message contained a link to a website called SaveCressbrookDale.com, which from the look of it seemed like a perfectly normal local environmental campaign. It had the customary pictures of natural beauty, a rugged valley filled with dark green forest, rocky cliffs rising at the edges, and a small village of grey houses overlooking it. I assumed it would be one of hundreds of similar kinds of campaigns that crop up every day in the British countryside. Something about a new road being built through a stretch of woodland, or some windmills destroying the view from someone's holiday home. On closer inspection, though, the website description revealed there was something a little weirder going on. Cressbrook Dale is a beautiful limestone valley in one of the most beautiful parts of England. To the residents, the Dale is a place of calm and beauty in an often troubling world. For many, it's why they chose to live here. For others, it's always been home. In June 2022, the villagers woke up to find a vast swath of the Dale had been sold to a group of people led by a one-time TV personality. The group were deliberately opaque about their aims, but it's since become clear that they believe in some kind of food apocalypse, a social breakdown, a great reset as it's been called, and to save themselves and everyone else, they will live and grow food in the woods and feed us all. Oh, no. (laughs) Never good to to read one-time TV personality. Never good. You don't want them living in your nice wooded area. You don't... (laughs) They never come bearing, you know, a cornucopia of gifts. They never come spreading the seeds of goodness. It's always the poisoned seed of the worst aspect of media. Yeah, you know, it's something I have noticed, actually. I don't know if it's the same in in your country, but it certainly is in mine. There seems to be some kind of connection between reality TV and conspiracy theories, I think, where it feels like lots of people who are big in the conspiracy world had their start in reality TV. There's something to be explored there. 
Well, we can all agree that actors are unhinged, some of them at least. <laughs> but when you're casting for reality TV, you are purposefully casting people with personality disorders, people who have deeper problems. And you want your host to be a little unhinged too. Why not? The whole thing from the top to, to, to the bottom is basically like, what if uh, mental illness was entertaining and we didn't script? After reading the website description, I was intrigued. As you'll have heard me say on the podcast before, I've been particularly interested in what has happened to COVID conspiracy theories and the people who believe in them long after the media and government have moved on. One of the biggest and fastest growing post-COVID conspiracy theories here is the Great Reset. Now, I've talked about this theory before and indeed even interviewed several of its believers for this very podcast, so I'll try not to repeat myself too much. But the theory, boiled down to its bare essentials, goes like this. The multinational lobbying organisation known as the World Economic Forum orchestrated the COVID pandemic, as well as a series of further escalating crises, in order to reduce the population, institute a one-world government, and make the remaining population their slaves. One thing that's always surprised me in my conversations with people who say they believe that this is happening is how relaxed they seem to be about this upcoming genocidal dictatorship. Sure, they go to marches and protests, but it all seems pretty small-scale when faced with an all-powerful cabal, one who has infiltrated nearly every national government and has the power to literally cause global pandemics, earthquakes and wildfires. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes along with the fact that they are not actually physically under siege. These are people who usually are quite mm. comfortable. I mean, they they may have obviously issues with housing, issues with, you know, the regular uh, human misery created by capitalism as it evolves. But they're not, you know, particularly being targeted usually, mm. except perhaps if they are targeted individuals, and then that is mostly in their minds. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think certainly... Uh, most of the rallies I've attended, these have tended to be, I would say, middle middle class people, like people who tend to own their own house, who own their own car and things like that. This is a phantom threat and it is uh, arming itself in the form of, uh, you know, posts, posts that, <laughs> that are worrying, videos that worry me. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I feel like a lot of these people, because they're uh, sometimes they're middle class and relatively comfortable, they get so bored, they need to feel the anxiety of what it w would be like to be a second class citizen or an oppressed minority or, so, or some sort of population mm. that is actually undergoing a very serious threat from powerful people. And so they just LARP it. They just go out and LARP as if they are those kinds of people. On some level, I think they've correctly ascertained that, like, even being middle class won't save you from the drudgery and misery of what we're going through, and that we're all kind of being reduced to second-class citizens. And that includes mentally for, for some billionaires. They, they also feel this bad all the time. <laughs> <laughs> this website, on the other hand, seemed to suggest that there was at least one section of Great Reset believers who were responding to the crisis in a way that felt strangely rational. Now, I can sense your skepticism about my use of that word, but hear me out. In the face of a great and malevolent power that is completely captured, completely corrupted, and completely unstoppable, what else is there to do but retreat? Throughout history, the act of buying some land and starting a new, separate society has been the response of many different groups to a wider world that they believe to be completely unsalvageable. And so it seemed that tradition was continuing here. A group known as Phoenix Rose had purchased some land in order to ride out the upcoming food shortages that they prophesied with the upcoming Great Reset. 
The problem the group seemed to have run into, also not a new one in the grand scale of human history, was that the people who already inhabited the land weren't feeling particularly grateful to their newfound neighbours. As the Save Crestbrook Dale website went on to say, The villagers of Crestbrook and surrounding areas do not feel any need to be saved. We are very worried about the impact that the scheme may have and is already having, both on this delicate and valuable part of our area's natural ecology and on our own peace and well-being. Oh, you always love to read the kind of manifesto of the reasonable because in these episodes, it, uh, you know, their hopes are soon Yeah, you dashed. know they're going to lose. You know that they're going to lose at the end. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's just uh, by being involved in the battle, you know, not necessarily ceding <laughs> yeah, exactly. the land, but yeah. just having to fucking deal with this. That's already a loss. <laughs> yeah, I had yeah. No, I, no idea that, the, that there was such a big community of like food crisis apocalyptic people. I've A good friend of mine's brother is actually like a, a massive influencer in this space who like believes that. Really? Yeah, the, who believes that there's going to be like a next ice age and mm. it's all tips and tricks for farming and cooking and how to grow your own food and all of this stuff. But it is sort of thinly wrapped in this veil of like an apocalypse is coming and your government is lying to you and and like they're not telling you about the food and so at first glance it looks kind of like just like a gardening club mm. but underneath the surface is something like far more sinister yeah yeah it's not just like hey look at my beautiful tomatoes it's like hey look at my beautiful tomatoes we're not gonna get in the pods we're not gonna eat the <laughs> yeah, bugs. totally. yeah totally yeah that is actually exactly the vibe that you that you get from yeah the kind of materials that this this group that purchased the land have put out as well like on the one hand it kind of seems like a just nice community initiative which is just food growing and but yeah there's always as you say that kind of element under the surface I wanted to find out more, so I decided to get in touch with Phil, the man who had originally messaged me about this situation, and we arranged a chat over Zoom. Phil turned out to be a softly spoken man with glasses, grey hair and thick black eyebrows. He was keen to stress to me that he wasn't a full-time resident of Crestbrook. He actually lives about an hour's drive away, but his family had been visiting the area since the 1970s. The plan, eventually, is to retire there. Crestbrook Dale is a magical slice of the Peak District. It's a ravine woodland on limestone geology, and it's a place of untouched natural beauty. In the middle of what is quite a cultivated region, the Peak District is mainly dry stone walls and uh, and livestock fields. And then you have these ravines that meander their way through with a stream at the bottom. It's mainly woodland. On one side of the stream, you have a nature reserve run by Natural England, home to some very rare species. Overlooking Ravensdale, where we live, there's this extraordinary cliff face with actual raven peregrines. It's quite famous in the climbing world, but it's shut to climbers during nesting season. We have this amazing spectacle of ravens and peregrines duking it out over us. It's magical, and it's one of the most special places I've ever, ever seen. Oh, wow. This is, like, very touching. I don't know. He really sets the the scene of, like, this is the kind of calm that I am seeking. I already Mm. embody it. And yet, and yet, you've you've listened to our podcast, which means something (laughs) has gone terribly wrong with your simple dream. He explained to me a very weird situation that the locals had found themselves in, where the tiny, close-knit village of Crestbrook had awoken one morning in 2022 to find a post on their local Facebook group. Crestbrook today. 
is our village Facebook site. And there was a post there by someone called Rachel Elnor. The text read something like, we are a nature-loving and peaceful group who are in the process of completing the purchase of 70 acres of Crestbrook Dale. Our intention is to grow a food forest to sustain us and the community in the face of the imminent food apocalypse. And it was met with a really interesting range of reactions from folks saying, oh, growing food, oh, that's really interesting. We can, you know, uh, like to know more. Uh, to others saying, we don't need saving. We've got a chippy around the corner. Thank you very much. We've got a chippy around the corner. Um, for the American <laughs> listener, means we have a fish and chips restaurant uh, around oh, yeah. the corner. Thank yeah. you for doing some British translations there, Julian. Of course. This is so charming. <laughs> Phil runs a charity that, among other things, offers climate change training. So although he's not exactly a conspiracy buff, he's come across denialism before. Some of the language that the Post used, he said, set off alarm bells to him. This was only enhanced when he spoke to one of the group in person, who it seemed had no filter. And the first conversation she had with a neighbour actually started uh, with an exposition of how the forces, the dark forces, are pushing us to use Bitcoin as a means of tracking our every movement and controlling it. When she, a bit later, when she came for that, the conversation to our play, her opening gambit was, she's, they're finding it very easy to raise investment because people are scared of banks now and imminent collapse of the financial system and, and a place that offers water, there's a spring and space to grow and fuel, like fuel, yes, the, the woodland, uh, to sit out the food apocalypse is very appealing. Now, that's an interesting combination of being conspiratorial and paranoid about Bitcoin. Usually, you know, people, uh, the, you know, the libertarians, you know, the people mm. worried about the Great Reset, they're they're a little bit more optimistic about the potential of Bitcoin. But uh, this is a this is an interesting twist. Yeah, you know, funnily enough, though, I have come across this this exact belief before, and I, th I wonder if it might be a British specific thing. I think. So I, I have come across, when I've been to anti-Great Reset protests before, there was one, which I guess was the sort of dregs of the anti-lockdown movement, but before they discovered things like 15-minute cities and things like that. And um, there was a lot of stuff there about using cash only, because if you used any kind of, you know, chip and pin card or something like that, that meant the government could track you and control you. And I even asked the guy, I said, what do you think about using Bitcoin as a, as a way to circumvent this? And he said, oh, no, no. No, that's that's what they want you to do or something similar. So it's, I think it's something to do with it being a slightly older crowd, mostly. It's mostly middle-aged people mm. who that stuff is, you know, they're yeah. so anti-technology, but they're very specifically anti-technology that they see as coming for a generation after them. Do you know that they don't understand and they find kind of scary? Well, mm. I hope that comes to America. We turn more people against Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now seems like it might be the right time to introduce you to the person being discussed here, who the Save Cressbrookdale website scathingly referred to as a one-time TV personality. That personality is Rachel Elnor, and although she objects to the term leader, she's very much the public face of the group who have bought the land. Some of our British listeners may recognise the name, particularly if you were an early fan of the UK reality series Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den, for those of you who haven't heard of it, is a series launched in the UK in 2005 in which four wealthy business leaders, the titular Dragons, are looking to invest in startup businesses. Okay, so Shark, Shark Tank, 
for the British. Yeah, yeah. I think Shark Tank actually might just be the same thing. Yes, it is. Over the course of each episode, a number of budding entrepreneurs approach them with their ideas and the dragons either invest or, more commonly, bully them. <laughs> Rachel Elnor is Alex's last hope. You've come across as incredibly hard work, and this is your pitch. Mm. We are selling yourself and your olive product and your business concept to us. Mm. Business is about problems, and actually one of the biggest tests of a successful entrepreneur is whether you can successfully get over those hurdles or whether they which we're defeat doing. you. Which we're doing. Well, it's two and a half years down the line. You've got through all of your cash, and all you can say is, really, it's, it's the supplier's fault that you haven't created a successful business. Now, actually, I quite like the product, and I personally like olives a lot, and I can see there's a gap in the market. Whether you can actually make it work or not is quite another matter, and that's mm. where I would have the problem in, in investing. So it's, it's not one for me, so I'm out. <laughs> that clip that you heard there was Rachel Elnor in an early series of Dragon's Den. She was the only woman on the panel, and she had more than earned her place there. In 1989, at the age of just 24, she had founded a company called Red Letter Days. Red Letter Days was a company with a novel concept. That is, it allowed people to buy experiences rather than objects as gifts. Using Red Letter Days, you could buy someone a spa day, a bungee jumping lesson, or a balloon ride. It's something that we take for granted now, but in the age before most people had the internet at home, it was a pretty big idea. Over the years, Red Letter Days expanded to reach an annual turnover of £18 million, and its founder, Rachel, won prestigious business awards. Her TV image was one of female entrepreneurship, success and wealth. But behind the scenes, things weren't going well. As she would later describe the situation in her book, Business Nightmares, when entrepreneurs hit crisis point. By the third Dragon's Den filming block in July 2005, things had reached a crisis point with Red Letter Days. A deal we had been working on fell through at the 11th hour. I was eight months pregnant, under extreme pressure, and there was no way I could continue to film the show. So, every evening, I went straight from the set to emergency meetings in the city, face still full of TV makeup, desperately trying to corral a new deal. It was exhausting and emotionally draining. At one meeting, I remember just completely breaking down in tears, black mascara running in channels down my face. In my heart, I realized that my company was slipping away from me and that there was nothing I could do about it. This is why you never start a company. <laughs> That's, just never start your own company. Just work for somebody else or marry into wealth if you can. <laughs> That's right. The QAA podcast is anti-entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, Jake, just hit your wagon to someone who has a cool idea, right? Mm-hmm. Right? H hey, That's wait a approach, minute, Jake? it was my cool idea. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. You were more like a, like a, a research and development, uh, like a, an animal that was experimented on. I came up from the basement <laughs> with like, hey, Julian, I, I've been looking into this, <laughs> this new thing called QAnon. Uh, I don't know if there's anything here, but uh, perhaps, perhaps uh, R&D, uh, we could allocate some uh, additional funding. <laughs> well, it seems that this man I wanted to start a podcast with is in a deep mental crisis, but the idiot savant might be onto something. <laughs> <laughs> this is canon now. This is how I imagine this podcast starting. Mm -hmm. I take idiot savant as a compliment, by the way. And when I use it, and when I use it on other people, I, I mean it as a compliment. I, I take it back because it was being. There's nothing worse than being purposefully intelligent. You always want to just stumble <laughs> upon. You always want to stumble upon brilliance. It's way more attractive. <laughs> 
That's so true. You want to stub your toe. That's so true. Yeah. It's like all of that, all of that intelligence just gets ruled out by being a tryhard, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I feel targeted. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel continued to brush aside rumors of cash flow problems. But meanwhile, the companies that supplied the experiences began fleeing in droves. Some suppliers, like the race car company Everyman Motor, complained that they hadn't been paid. Red Letter Days soon went into administration, which means essentially that it went bankrupt. With experienced suppliers going unpaid, the people who had bought the vouchers were now left holding just a useless bit of paper. It was actually two other members of the Dragons panel, the businessman Peter Jones and Theo Pafitis, who bought the failing Red Letter Days from Rachel, swallowing up all its remaining assets and goods. And over the next few years, they turned the business around and returned it to profitability, before selling it on to a French company in 2017. But in the time immediately following the collapse of her company, Rachel found herself in a difficult position. Dragon's Den was a show about success. It captured a moment in the mid-noughties atmosphere of Tony Blair's Britain, where the city of London was the heart of the financial world, and winning was all that mattered. The showrunners at the BBC didn't want someone on their panel whose business was failing. On top of that, Rachel's relationship with the other dragons had soured after the takeover of her business, and after discussions, she agreed to leave the show. The whole experience clearly had a huge impact on Rachel. Reading her book, Business Nightmares, which was designed to transform the whole saga into a learning experience for other budding entrepreneurs, it's hard not to detect a note of bitterness. She mentions more than a few times how quickly people she had thought of as friends and colleagues dropped her once Red Letter Days began to go under. An investigation by the Department of Trade and Industry into the company's finances is described in the book as a plot to, quote, display my head on a pole in the shiny foyer of their offices. As she puts it at one point in the book, As I found to my personal cost, when you are a high-flying, high-profile risk-taker, there is an absolute army of faceless, jealous people out there, just ready to use whatever tiny pocket of power they may possess to bring you down. From there, Rachel dropped out of the limelight for a bit. From what I've managed to gather, she still kept a foot in the corporate realm, giving speeches at conferences for women in business, but it's also clear that her rocky experience in the business world had changed her, and she was exploring new ways of understanding life as a result. A live-streamed interview I found from 2017 showed her talking with a life coach that she described as a master shaman about her experiences at one of his retreats. And this version of Rachel is very different to the hard-nosed businesswoman we saw on Dragon's Den. 2017, I really think, is the great purification where we are really shifting consciousness and everything that is not of that alignment to source is having to be have a, have a light shone on it, you know. So all of this old limiting beliefs and programs, are, are re- we're really having to dig deep and look at our demons and look at this all of this fear and really try and transmute it. And that's the alchemy that, that we're going through. So, so doing things like the retreat was, it was a magnificent experience of, in that sense of being, because I, I really got this, this work is experiential. You can't get it in the mind. It, you have to experience it and get and open your heart. Yeah, it's so weird to like have seen her kind of bully uh, what looks mm-hmm. like a, a an extremely stressed out and kind of harried uh, fail, failing business owner to then becoming, you know, a person in the same situation, getting bullied by the other dragons who smelled her mm-hmm. weakness. And that's what dragons do. You know, it's like the story <laughs> of the frog and the scorpion. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
We all know what dragons do in their dens, okay? If they don't, you know, they don't they sit invite on gold. you in for <laughs> they tea. They sit on gold and they attack everything that comes into yeah, the freaking cave. Yeah, they sit on cave. gold. That's it. Yeah, they bury their snouts in gold. Uh, they breathe yeah. fire. They eat hobbits. Um, <laughs> and and then to see her kind of have this, you know, genuine spark of light in her eyes as she starts to explore the world beyond mm. the physical, beyond the material, and perhaps finding satisfaction in something a little more spiritual. I'm sure that this guy, uh, this fucking fake-ass shaman with his, like, I don't know, he just looks extremely like the shaman of suburbia. And uh, I'm sure he won't lead her astray. This this can't go wrong. No, I mean, I, I do want to be clear about that, because I do agree, Julian, there's nothing wrong with this way of thinking. And in fact, I can actually really understand why after such a distressing experience in the business world, Rachel would want to explore belief systems that reject the hyper-capitalist paradigm that prioritizes material wealth and success over everything. But yeah, regular listeners of this podcast may also understand that this is an unfamiliar story in some of the journeys we've passed through New Age and conspirituality. And so I guess you may also have an understanding of where this spiritual journey goes next. Yeah, it's almost uh, (laughs) like the fact that instead of kind of relying on, let's say, um, a kind of established Buddhist teacher of some kind, she went for the kind of spiritual entrepreneurs, right? Which is what she mm. recognizes. And it was that little remnant of her old life that probably would rise up to betray her because these people are often subjected to the laws of attention, social media, and the very capitalism that maybe you're trying to escape. And so that's why this video is even posted on YouTube, probably to be like, hey, look, I have a famous mm. attendee of my my uh, my little like shaman seminar. And so, I mean, unfortunately, the same exploitation is is happening just under the guise of uh, of spirituality. Oh, that's such an interesting read. I hadn't even occurred that hadn't even occurred to me, but yeah, I bet you're right. The next time the entrepreneur exploded into the media spotlight would be over the pandemic in 2020. Like many in the New Age world, Elnor took a sceptical position to the public health solutions offered to COVID-19. In a Facebook livestream published in September 2020 titled Rachel Speaks Out, she made clear that she did believe that COVID was a real virus, but that she didn't trust the upcoming vaccines offered by the government, pharmaceutical companies or global health institutions. The video went viral on Facebook and Rachel, almost overnight, became something of a celebrity activist in a movement which was desperate for public recognition and legitimacy. She was invited to give a speech at an anti-lockdown rally in Trafalgar Square, which she ended up declining, but she did record what her speech would have entailed in another Facebook livestream. Oh, always always good to see odyssey.com that you know that it's going to be good shit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be making you watch so many Odyssey links, I'm afraid, this episode. Yeah, let's go. I am speaking here today, not as someone who has been on the telly, but as a mother of five sons. And because I care deeply about the future being created for all the world's children. We may not know the exact detail, but our intuition tells us there is something very wrong. Trust in your gut feeling. Tune in to when things feel out of resonance. Know in your heart that they are lying to us. Ask yourself why we have a World Health Organization whose only solution is vaccinations. Could it be because they are funded by Big Pharma? Ask yourself why the government is rushing through unlicensed vaccinations and is removing all legal liability from those who are manufacturing 
and administering them. Do you smell a rat? This is what I call um, what no left-wing analysis does to an MF. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the annoying thing is that it's like the WHO solutions to COVID weren't only vaccines. There were things like masks and social distancing and lockdowns. But these people hated all of those too. (laughs) Yeah, because what they're really sensing is not actually the government response to COVID. It's the fact that everything has been co-opted, that the dream was sold out from under us, and that uh, there is no project of society, just a project of increasing profit and endless development into oblivion. And an increase in posting. Yes. <laughs> way more posting, way more YouTube. Increased posting. You're, you, yeah, you're fighting, you're fighting, uh, you know, a, a invisible war online. Yeah. Plus like the fact mm-hmm. that you're having kids, unfortunately, it contributes to your lack of sleep. And so you're completely kind of uh, vulnerable to a lot of this stuff. So yeah, I feel for her, you know, I can like, I can kind of sense mm-hmm. in this video, the, the kind of inner pain and stress and just brings a person to a breaking point. As the video continued, it became clear that Rachel had been emboldened by the overwhelmingly positive response her first video had received. And what's more, had clearly been consuming a lot of popular conspiracy narratives surrounding masks, vaccines, and 5G. You can tell the extent to which these conspiracy narratives had become her information environment because of her absolute confidence, shared by many very online COVID skeptics, that the truth about COVID was just about to break, vindicating them all. The aim is to create so much fear that the masses will say yes to vaccinations. And these vaccinations will contain the nanotechnology to create transhumans so that the masses can be policed and controlled by technology. This is why 5G is being rolled out globally, to power the internet of things. We may be at the 11th hour, but it is not midnight yet. There is still time, but we must act fast and we must act now. We need to derail this juggernaut before it is too late. We need to create the biggest pattern interrupt in history. We need to stand up en masse and say, no, we do not consent. Say no to being muzzled by masks. Say yes to breathing fresh air. Say no to antisocial distancing. Say yes to love and hugs. Say no to vaccinations. Say yes to enhancing our natural immune systems. Say no to being policed by facial recognition and drones. Say yes to our inalienable sovereign rights. Say no to command and control government. Say yes to liberation. Those obedient and compliant people who are under the spell of the government mind control programs tell us that we are being selfish not to comply, that we should mask up to save lives, to protect the elderly and the vulnerable, to help relieve the burden on the NHS. I say, do not fall for the divide and conquer strategy conveyed by catchy mantras designed to turn us against one another, designed to engender judgment and shame. One day, when the truth is revealed, those currently sleepwalking into the future the 1% are planning will thank us for making this stand. They will thank us for saying, not on our watch. 
In the video description for that video, Rachel signs off with this. If you feel yourself strongly triggered into anger at any point in this video, please go inwards and explore the unexploded bomb of unresolved trauma that the trigger is attached to, thus liberating yourself forever. Yeah, I really like that as like a video description. I would like to take that and also add it to the end of this podcast as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Elnor began live streaming more regularly, gathering a small but loyal audience who, like her, were convinced that the pandemic was being orchestrated in order to introduce something more sinister. This was a very different kind of fame to the kind that Rachel had enjoyed before. She was less of a national figure on TV and more of a figurehead in a movement that primarily organised itself online. And even here, it's clear she wasn't interested in cultivating a massive profile in the movement so much as talking to her small, mostly localised online following. You can see this from the way she began experimenting with online tools to distribute her message, organising regular online meetings with fellow travellers that she called The People Speak Out, a nod to the title of her first livestream. She also set up a couple of separate groups on the messaging platform Telegram, an app well-beloved amongst the pilled for its famously relaxed moderation standards, where she and her followers could chat without fear of surveillance or censorship. Rachel did, however, make national headlines once again when she tweeted in September 2021 that Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer for England, would be executed for his decision to recommend COVID vaccinations for children. Responding to a tweet from the TV show Good Morning Britain, announcing the story and soliciting responses, Elnor posted this. Child abuse. Whitty will hang for this. Hashtag cease and desist. Okay, okay, now we're calling for the hangings. Yeah. This is... This is good. Although this netted a lot of shocked tabloid headlines branding the tweet vile, it was very much in keeping with the common thinking at the time in COVID skeptic circles that Rachel was running in. Many were convinced that as public health restrictions lifted, the grand hoax of COVID was about to be exposed and the key perpetrators punished. You can see Rachel reflecting on this in some of her live streams, like this one, filmed right after she'd gotten back from a rally in London in June 2021. The crowd, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a joyful crowd, but, you know, we're on to you, Matt Hancock and Fauci and Boris Johnson and Biden and Justin Trudeau and the people behind it, the George Soros and the Klaus Schwab. The whole of this, this capitalist-funded system, you know, we're on to you. And everyone knows, everyone can see through the lies and the propaganda, not, not everyone. Not everyone, because obviously there's a mass of people who are saying, yeah, jab me up. I'm frightened. Let me put on my mask. Let me gel my hands. But there's a huge number of people who don't believe any of this shit anymore. And we are speaking out and we're marching out and we're rising up, not in hatred and anger. There was no sense of any violence whatsoever yesterday. This is just us saying, we see you and we do not consent and we're not going to be part of this. And that number is growing. And that number um, was out in force yesterday. And, uh, you know, if I were Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock, I would be extremely frightened for, my, for myself and my family because, you know, people are pushing for Nuremberg type trials and they are calling they are they're calling these leaders to account so the title of the video is just hangcock yeah <laughs> yeah lots of lots of politicians getting hanged apparently 
I think what we're seeing here is a reverse Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? You know, she's gone from <laughs> she's gone from, you know, sitting on a panel on a, you know, popular reality television show as one of the experts poo-pooing people's ideas or or making their dreams come true, you know, kingmaker. Mm. And now she's she's shouting in her car in a parking lot, you know, looking very ti- you know, looking very tired, sort of rambling. I mean, it's sort of the opposite this is where Marjorie Taylor mm-hmm. Greene started, you know, sort of scraggly looking in her car, yelling, yelling into the Facebook Live. And now, you know, she has a, a seat in the government. So it, it really it really does. Uh, it's a nice uh, contrast of the, the <laughs> two paths of, of which, uh, you know, these these conspiracy theories could take a person. Definitely. Although I have to say, I feel like the Rachel Elnor trajectory seems to me so much more common than the Marjorie Taylor Greene one. Do you know? Like, Yeah. You don't usually get empowered. You don't usually get more healthy and more mentally put together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and get more like, you know, just actual explicit power, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. At the same time, it wasn't as if the COVID skeptic movement foresaw everything getting back to normal either. Many of them had begun to learn about the Great Reset conspiracy theory, which saw COVID, vaccines and climate events as all part of an orchestrated plan. Part of the plot to destabilise society, many believed, was killing off huge sections of the population with the COVID vaccine. Elnor, in a podcast interview with the right-wing journalist James Dellingpole, made clear that this had had an impact on her thinking also. Now, you said something earlier which I agree with, and I think a lot of people are going to find quite jarring and scary you said that people are going to die this autumn probably in large numbers um are you talking about age responses to the to the to the the so-called vaccines yeah well the the local councils all over the uk have put out contracts for mass body collections commencing on the 1st of september Uh, i saw a video about recruitment they are planning in big industries to they're going to have to replace all vaccinated staff within three years. So there's signs that and and all of the experts who are talking about the cytokine storms that will kick in when the immune system reacts with these these um, I won't call them vaccines, these uh, genetic engineering uh, experimental injections. So we are likely to see mass death. And it's going to be it's going to be blamed on some new variant yes. that the jabs that got you know that the jabs didn't quite cover and everyone needs an extra booster for the new variant. You can yes. see you can see what how you they're going to spin it. And so these mass deaths that come through, you know, we have to be prepared for the fact that they you, you know hundreds of thousands of people are going to die, yes. and it's. We have to really brace ourselves. This is going to get quite dark. Psychotine storm. Sounds cool. Yeah, funny enough, I think I've heard that being used by anti-vaxxers before, but I can't remember in what context. Sounds like some X-Men shit. <laughs> yeah, totally. All of this felt pretty far away from Elnor's peace and love musings about getting into your consciousness and opening your heart that she'd been espousing a few years ago. Her journey seemed emblematic of the way in which parts of the New Age spirituality movement had become increasingly politicised over the course of the pandemic. Nonetheless, I was struck by something else Rachel said in the same interview, which hit a more optimistic note. 
Resistance against this new, terrifying regime was possible, and it began with small, localised communities. There's a huge programme in, in the patriarchal mindset which has been implanted in us that you have to get to numbers to be effective, and I don't think that's true at all. I think that small, local community groups of normal people coming together and linking and creating strong local networks. It doesn't have to be big, even if it's just a dozen people, that is really powerful. And as those groups join and link up, what, what will happen is there will be a whole grid of people across the planet who are the resistance. And it's going to be based on local community groups. I'm absolutely convinced of it. On the 8th of June 2022, Rachel released a video called Rachel of Cressbrook, in which she announced that after a private crowdfunding campaign, she and some of her supporters had begun the purchase of a large part of Cressbrook Dale. Rachel of Cressbrook, queen of dragons, the unbroken, the unburned. <laughs> she's, on, she's on her fucking, she's in her royalty era. Let's go. <laughs> so here I am walking the land. It's pretty, pretty much the whole of the western side of Cressbrook Dale. I'll put in some um, Google Earth footage so you get a, a much better idea. It's a, quite an incredible kind of vagina of land. <laughs> and um, when you drive across here from Bakewell to Tideswell on the way to Manchester, if you know that route, there's kind of miles and miles of rolling hills and then there's these incredible gorges of uh, dales carved out of the landscape. I'm moving to a vagina of land. Yeah, she uses that phrase in, in her videos a lot when she's talking about Cressbrook as well. It's amazing to see how much like feminism and anti-capitalism, two forces that would make sense if you leave the dragon's den and realize what the mm. fuck is going on. You realize, hey, capitalism, an issue. The patriarchy, an issue. And instead, here we fucking are. Great reset bullshit. This is how yeah. this is how genuine human growth, realization, potential radicalization to the left is co-opted by these kinds of conspiracy movements. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really true. I'll now explain that the land hadn't been their first choice. An earlier iteration of the group had tried to purchase a farm in the area the year before, but the sale had fallen through and energy had dissipated. This time, though, the project for what she described as an eco-community seemed to be going ahead. She described how the purchase had come about in semi-spiritual terms. This whole eco-community project, from the inception in uh, kind of January 2021... Here we are in June 2022, so pretty much 18 months later. Um, and here we are having actually acquired it. But a lot of people went through that process. I mean, probably getting on for 100 people went through that process. And we ended up with 22 people who actually energised this first wave. And one of the really amazing things, which was a really beautiful aspect, because we were dealing with a very um, awakened son of the Lord of the Manor, who's fully, uh, fully awake to the program and jabs and uh, what's going on, and uh, very kind of consciously aware and enlightened. We agreed to acquire it over two years to give us lots of time to raise the necessary funding. So although we've exchanged completed, we have negotiated ourselves 24 months to actually settle the entire purchase price which gives us the luxury of time. And what it means is um, we, we only went out to get that first 22 people. Um, we only went out to a very, very small 
group of people, basically everyone who came to the Buxton event, everyone who'd signed up to the Inner Sanctum information. So a few hundred people there. And also people who'd signed up to the Rachel Speaks Out Zoom webinars. So it only went out to a very small number of people and we kind of kept it, deliberately kept it quite secret. And uh, that really helps with manifestation to only go to like-minded people. Hello, Sharks. Uh, my name is Rachel, and today I'm seeking a $500,000 investment in exchange for a 5% ownership of my post-apocalyptic garden community. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the son of the Lord of the Manor is pilled, so that means like, I know. someone involved in the land sale is pilled, too. <laughs> Perhaps as a result of having gotten used to shrouding the project in secrecy, it was difficult to tell from the announcement video exactly what Rachel wanted to use the land for. She referred to it as an eco-community project a couple of times, but even that felt pretty vague. From my contact with the villagers, I had already gotten a sense of what her local opponents' worst fears were. That her group were planning to build on the land, destroying the natural beauty of the area. Their fears weren't totally groundless either, as the land had been altered since Elnor's group first purchased it. The Save Crestbrookdale website set out some of the locals' grievances. Already the group have used an earthmover on site, a car park has been built, turf dug up to create a path and make flat areas for structures, water courses have been altered, there are plans to hold festivals and for camping on the site. It is very hard to watch as lorry loads of gravel are delivered and as Digger scrapes away wildflowers and destroys habitats and as you discover that your new and very close neighbors have no regard for your feelings, health, and well-being, for the preciousness of the land and for the institutions set up to protect what is so important to all of us. Unfortunately, your land wasn't owned by you in the community. It was owned by the son of the lord of the manor. So maybe <laughs> fucking get, get, get those fucking guillotines out and take care of that before he sells it to another fucking pilled community. Oh, Julian's getting French again. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> There's nothing more human than this, right? Walking through the beautiful and being like, oh, it's a beautiful swath of land. And you can hear the birds chirping and, oh, it's quite lovely out here. And then it's like, rah, rah, bring in the excavators, <laughs> build my, build, build Jonestown in the middle of the forest. It's just like, <laughs> of course, like, of course, of course. Alongside this description were admittedly very unflattering images of rubbish left on a gravel car park and alongside a caravan all on site. It certainly looked at odds with Rachel's description of their intentions for the land as some sort of tranquil spiritual haven for the eco-conscious. Still, when I spoke to Joe Ash, a local journalist for the website Derbyshire Alive, he offered another side to the story. He was the first person to report on the local conflict brewing between the two sides, and had actually spoken to Rachel when he went down to the site to examine the village's claims of wanton environmental destruction. While he wasn't exactly won over by her more out-there beliefs about the upcoming food apocalypse, it was clear that she had come across as pretty reasonable to him all the same. He noted that Rachel had told him that the caravan on site, which had caused such distress to the Save Crestbrookdale team, had only been placed there as a security measure, following vandalism from the locals. Overall, Ash took a diplomat's view on the simmering local tensions he had covered. Both sides of the party, in when it comes to the conflict, refuse to admit in some ways that they're in the wrong, if you understand what I, where I'm getting at, where she basically said that they'd tried to speak to locals and they'd tried to explain stuff to them and they were the locals weren't understanding or weren't appreciating it and that, that was the case, and then now there was vandalism. But she didn't admit to the fact, well, I think I mentioned it to her as well, that 
for these locals who've lived here 60, 70 years, this sudden change is going to be quite big and expecting them to submit or even just agree to it in the space of a couple of months is probably going to be quite difficult. Likewise, the locals, I haven't actually spoken to the Cresbrookdale team since that interview with Rachel L now, or, or not, not massively, I've not spoken to them, but I don't know if they would admit that some of their ideas in terms of what they're doing to the Cresbrook Dale might not be as harmful as they're saying. Rachel compared it to if your partner goes away on holiday for a week and you decide, I want to redecorate the house. When your partner gets back and you're halfway through redecorating, she's going to blow her lid. She's going to go mental at you going, what, why, why is the wallpaper all off the walls? Why is the paint on the carpets? But if you get, if she gave you another week or two and the house is finished, she might turn around and go, wow, that looks amazing. What an amazing job. Obviously that's completely speculative because she's still got to finish it. It could look awful after she's finished it, but her point was nobody knows. Obviously in her opinion, it's going to enhance the, the area. Yeah, so it's just there's just no you know bonhomie here. There's nobody nobody likes each other, mm. and so <laughs> it's not going to be exactly a collaborative process. Yeah, it's hard. I think when two people just don't speak the same language, which I think is something that has kind of happened in this in conspiracy subcultures. It's it's why we often talk on this podcast about people losing friends and relatives and stuff because people that they love very much stop being able to speak the same language, stop being able to connect to the same reality. The other person I spoke to was Rachel herself, but unfortunately I can't actually play you these interviews. Although we had some perfectly pleasant conversations, she said she would only let me use the recordings of those if I handed over full editorial control of the podcast to her. Okay, well, <laughs> Rachel, welcome. Annie, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> so given I wasn't prepared to do that, we reached something of a polite stalemate. Nonetheless, it does feel worth saying that she was nothing but warm and courteous with me. Although I might have played some clips of her saying some pretty shocking things in isolation, I could also see what it was about her that had inspired her followers to give up their time and cash in supporting her in this project. All these conflicting reports and counter-accusations of vandalism and extremism from all sides convinced me that the best way to understand what was happening here was to travel up to Cressbrook myself. And so, in October 2022, I and my husband, Paul, made the journey up to the Peak District. It was just a couple of weeks after we'd gotten married, so we joked that the trip was something of a working honeymoon. While we were driving, we started to chat a little about the differing perspectives that researching the conflict and talking to the people involved had thrown up for us. One thing I mentioned was how I could sympathise with the reasons why both parties felt under siege. I feel for these people. Do you know? Like, I... I, I, you know, I, I study conspiracy theorists and uh, kind of radical politics, and but I choose to do that. Do you know? I choose to, uh, I choose to kind of allow these politics into my life, and I can imagine I would feel pretty upset if I didn't have a choice in the matter. Yeah, you just looked out the window and they were right there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, yeah, you know, my duty as a as a journalist is to go there and find out the story and listen to both sides but um, but I definitely do do feel for this community who have just had the great reset and anti-vaccines and everything else just kind of land on their doorstep. 
On the other hand, I mentioned to Paul why I could also understand how the seeming hugeness and urgency of the Great Reset probably meant the new landowners had very little concern for what no doubt felt like comparatively very petty details about caravans, car parks and teepees on the land. Because I guess something that the Great Reset conspiracy theory does, a bit like QAnon, the conspiracy theory QAnon, is it isn't just explaining one event that happened in the past. They're not just talking about COVID, they're talking about events that are happening now, so the cost of living crisis, climate change, um, lots of new pieces of legislation in Parliament. These are all evidence to them of the Great Reset unfolding in front of their eyes. So that is quite an alarming prospect from their point of view. It's not just that, you know, they're waiting for doomsday at one point in the future. They kind of think doomsday is happening right now. So now you're learning what it's like to be married to me and trapped on a car journey with me where I just talk to you about this stuff all the time. <laughs> well, what, what you do, I think the, the best technique is to just kind of kindly, compassionately, you make eye contact, you give a smile and you go, mm, mm, mm. mm. <laughs> You, it, you only really have to be concerned when people start going, ha, 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 nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the worst response you can get via text or, or via speech. <laughs> As we reached Bakewell, which is only about five miles out of Cressbrook, we began to notice something weird. Now, this is honestly a slightly embarrassing clip to play, because while at the time I thought it could be evidence that we were entering pilled territory, I'm kind of aware listening back to it that we sound pretty pilled ourselves. So we are about 10 miles out from Cressbrook, and one thing that we've noticed is that lots of the road signs, the speed signs, which say how many miles per hour you should be driving, they say 50 miles per hour, but well, the sign says 50 but somebody has changed it to 5Q. He's drawn a line through the zero of the 50. It's really strange. Do you think that's a coincidence? I have no idea, but obviously, I mean, because I research and study QAnon, uh, that's kind of where my mind just immediately goes. I mean, it could just be a total coincidence. It could just be like kids having a laugh and, you know, kind of uh, just an inside joke among some teenagers or something. Uh, but, I mean, given, given why we're here, given where we are, it seemed worth commenting on. Yeah, yeah it was two signs just driving through Bakewell. Very strange. Yeah. Is there any significance to the number five in QAnon mythology, do you know? I'm not that I can think of. There's another one. Oh, yeah, we just passed two more. That's five Q, five Q. It seems to be done with a little black sticker. Yeah. I mean, the further we go, the more it starts to feel very dedicated for teenagers doing a prank. Yeah, no, I, I, I get uh, the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Q, 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 Q. It, it makes yeah. sense. I mean, what's weird is Rachel, Rachel's not a QAnon person. I don't think I've ever heard her bring that up. So I don't know. Maybe I am just, just pilled. Yeah. To this day, I haven't been able to find out exactly what was going on with those signs. Although I did, after doing some digging, find a comment thread on the car review site and forum Honest John from 2020, which had people asking the same question. So while I at least knew that Paul and I hadn't imagined it, it did seem to be a phenomenon that predated the purchase of Cressbrookdale and the subsequent conflict. The forum denizens there speculated that the five Qs were in protest at recent legislation which had reduced local speed limits from 60 to 50. But someone did share an article from Yorkshire Live, which noted that the same phenomenon had been observed in nearby Sheffield and South Yorkshire too. 
This article actually also brought up QAnon as a potential theory for what was behind the mysterious vandalism. It closes with this. If the conspiracy theory is as popular as magazines like Time have made out, Q's message is then apparently being spread by people defacing road signs in Sheffield and the wider Yorkshire area. Or maybe there is a completely different reason behind it entirely. Yeah. So, while we're none the wiser as to what was going on here, it is at least nice to know that I'm not the only person whose brain has been so broken by the QAnon phenomenon that it just immediately leapt there. We're all with you. (laughs) want you to know that. After a long, rainy drive, we finally arrived in Crassbrook. Both Phil in our conversation and Rachel in her live streams had emphasised to me what a beautiful part of the world it was, and neither of them had been exaggerating. There was a pretty magical moment where our car crested a hill after driving through a fairly dense wooded area. We were suddenly staring down at a vast rolling green valley, stretching out into the distance, taking up our entire field of vision. As we arrived in the village itself, I was struck by just how small the place was. Even by the countryside standards, Cressbrook was remarkably remote, really just a smattering of cottages spread out across a wide hillside, which led to the famous Cressbrook Dale itself, the contested site of land that had recently been purchased by Phoenix Rose. At the bottom of the hill sat a very large white building, which had once been a Victorian textile mill, now converted into flats. We checked into our accommodation and then walked over to Phil's cottage, where he had invited us for a debrief. We were greeted by Phil and his incredibly enthusiastic dog. After we had gotten past all the discussion of miserable weather, complaints about traffic and offers of cups of tea that were all necessary components in British hospitality rituals, we got to talking about the situation at Crestbrook and the newcomers. One thing that Phil and many of the other residents of the village over the course of our stay were really keen to stress to me was that they weren't kicking up a fuss over Rachel and her fellow travellers' beliefs. People were clearly concerned with how their campaign might look to observers, like a small-minded rural village gathering their pitchforks and ganging up on a kooky but harmless outsider. During our visit, one or two villagers felt keen to stress to me that they weren't NIMBYs. The derogatory colloquialism usually used to refer to residents resistant to any kind of change or development in their immediate area. Nonetheless, Phil gave what I thought was a pretty thoughtful statement on how the group's unconventional understanding of the world made both cooperation and conflict with them a uniquely challenging task. This is not about the group's beliefs, it is about the implications of their beliefs, and I think that's a really core distinction. People have to be free to believe whatever they want to believe, but it is the detachment from objective reality that is scary. When you find out that the representative of the group sincerely believes in satanic forces, and then you realise that these folk have bought this land for a purpose. The land has not been bought to maintain the status quo. That's a pointless exercise on anyone's book. They've bought the land to change it, to settle it. They believe there's going to be a food apocalypse. This was almost their opening line to us on Facebook. We're going to create a food forest to sustain us all through the imminent food apocalypse. That's fairly close to a quote, to which we all go, uh um, And again, yeah, that's curiosity, except for the impact on this this amazing unique ravine forest Mm. that is untouched and when the national park say folks you can't put a car park there and they do folks you can't keep tents here after this amount of time and they do they're fined they have a stop notice put on them etc etc even little things that they when they refer to the authorities 
It's authorities in inverted commas. And again, in isolation, yeah, so what? But there's no connection on which to argue or connect and have uh, have a dialogue. Not argue, have a dialogue. If you're seeking to settle a difference, you need a dialogue and some common points of contact. And that's what I fear is is missing here. And, and, uh, and I mean fear literally because it's scary. I think this very genuine sense of fear among the locals was something I hadn't fully appreciated until I came to visit myself. Again, that's probably a result of my strange position, as someone who's both very familiar with the conspiracy discourses that they were encountering, and yet also oddly distant from them. I read a lot of pilled material as part of my job and research interests, but that's from behind a computer screen. Even when I travel to rallies and interview people there, it's never been in my hometown. The residents of Cressbrook, by contrast, had been forced to learn about this stuff as a result of it moving next door to them, and what they had seen had frightened them. As I talked to more locals during the course of my stay in Cressbrook, I felt like I gained a deeper perspective on the potential human impact of the beliefs and ideologies that I found so academically fascinating. One villager I spoke to called Jenny, originally from Zimbabwe, told us that she had lived in the village for 16 years and had raised her children here. She said that for the first time since arriving, she had begun locking her doors while she was out of the house or even upstairs, a phenomenon that's practically unheard of in an area as rural as this. People are feeling increasingly vulnerable and threatened, actually. Just this weekend, there have been a few things. You know, there have been, we've noticed people walking around who don't look very savoury and, and are being passive aggressive and when they're asked questions are saying mind your own business that sort of thing um, so that seems to be increasing um, we've been given advice not to walk alone that is <laughs> the reason that we live in this village in this area is because we feel safe a, a part of my sanity is being able to go out and go for a walk alone and think you know that that i mean that's what sustained me through through the whole of the covid thing is is just being able to go out for a walk and feel safe and in this wonderful space the fact that you're being told that that's not safe is is a concern In particular, there was one image that more than one person I spoke to during the course of my stay in the village brought up to me, one which was shared by Rachel on the 28th of July 2022 on her Rachel Speaks Out Telegram channel. The picture is by the cartoonist Bob Moran, entitled The Good Reset. The Good Reset depicts a blissful scene with a couple having a picnic in the countryside under a bright blue sky, while their children frolic close by. In typical reactionary cartoonist style, everything is labelled, so you can be absolutely certain of the image's ideological bent, right down to the fact the couple are a man and a woman who have, quote, lots of children. Naturally controlled CO2 levels, shrinking cities, no turbines, and locally produced chemical-free food all contribute as labels to the image's utopian charm. Then, finally, buried deep underneath the earth in this bucolic scene are masks, stay-home banners, vaccines, and finally a mass of human skeletons. These are all labelled as globalist scumbags. Okay, so we killed them to achieve this. Cool. Fun. Why yeah. Why do they have, why is one of the uh, decaying corpses wearing like a blue sweater and glasses? Is that what they think of us? That we just wear kind of uh, non-threatening sweatshirts and big spectacles? Oh, mm-hmm. I see some I guess boots. it's meant to be like a scientist or a, yeah. a doctor of some kind. Bill Gates, potentially. 
Mm-hmm. I see an Antifa no. boot. No, no. In oh, the yeah. <laughs> really, this is this depicts basically what fascists will think will happen after fascism wins, right? Mm. Just the, the we need to achieve we can't achieve utopia, but first we need to murder and bury the nerds with nearsightedness. <laughs> <laughs> this is unreal. They got somebody wearing reading books. It's like, no, you're still gonna be on your iPad playing match, you know? It's like <laughs> You're not going to – no, this is just oh, lots of children, locally yeah. produced chemical-free food, shrinking mm-hmm. cities, no EMF. This is crazy. An open church as well. Open church. Built on the bones of my enemies. As if <laughs> as if the churches here or anywhere aren't open. As if we're literally not saying what year it is based on when Jesus Christ died. It's so funny to me that in order to like further their belief system or or hobby, really, they have to create a reality for themselves in which all of these things are are not pot. You can already yeah, you want to pay more. There's a great grocery place near Julian that has um you know all organic real you know really really nice fruits and vegetables high end stuff i mean you've got to pay for it but you can get it without all the stuff yeah and actually that's a really good point cuz when it said the open church i was like oh because churches were closed during lockdown but this image is created in 2022 so the churches have been open for a long time yeah and many were open during lockdown too mm. There was a lot of, I remember like driving by um, in the pandemic in my old neighborhood, which was like uh, a big uh, Hasidic Jew uh, area. And um, I remember driving down, driving down Olympic and I, I looked over and they had sent up a tent. There was, there is a tent outside and there was a rabbi leaving a, uh, leading a service and there were a bunch of people in attendance. They were all wearing masks. They were sitting outside. It was like, no, this, you can, you can go and do this still. <laughs> it's like even, <laughs> even in the, you know, the height of the pandemic, I mean, even more so probably in 2022. Even to a seasoned researcher like me, the good reset struck me as a remarkably hateful image. And so it's hardly surprising that many villagers felt alarmed at it being shared publicly by one of their new neighbours. More than anything, it seemed to me to demonstrate the strange contradictions of our new post-COVID conspiracist subculture that had confused so many people trying to make sense of the movement. The way that aesthetics, ideas and symbols traditionally associated with environmentalist activism, hippies and the anti-corporate left have become repurposed for a movement that organised itself around conspiracism, climate denialism and at its very worst, fantasies of organised mass violence against their political enemies. It was a tension that Cressbrook's residents were now finding themselves having to navigate as they continued their campaign. In the next episode, which will be part two of two about my trip to the Peak District, I'll share some more interviews with residents, as well as dive into accusations by the newcomers of a local hate campaign against Rachel Elnor specifically. I'll also try to go into a bit more detail about what Phoenix Rose have actually got planned for the land, as well as their various run-ins with the Peak District National Park Authority. Finally, I'll give an update on what's been happening since I visited Crestbrook last year. Fantastic. We look forward to it. And that will be coming next week. Yeah, tune in. Thank you so much, Annie, for this episode. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to another episode of the QAA podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous and sign up for five bucks a month. You'll get access to all of our mini series and you will get access to a huge archive of premium episodes. A lot of people are saying that's where the, the best stuff is. That's where the gold is. <laughs> Other than this public 
and very good Annie episode. QAnonAnonymous.com is our website. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. I think the ultimate aim of um, um, money and abundance and prosperity is getting into a relationship with money that is just like breathing. So if you think when you breathe in and when you breathe out, there's no kind of tension. You don't kind of think, if I breathe out, there's not going to be any air to breathe back in again. And I think if you can get into that flow where you can happily spend money and happily attract money, that is the ultimate in terms of prosperity where you've got no tension around money. The second big thing I think to re- that people really need to get is that everything that's in their life, including the amount of money and their relationship with it, is exactly what they have attracted in. And once you take total responsibility and you really understand that you are like, um, you're like a magnet, you're attracting exactly a match to yourself energetically. So everything, all of your circumstances, all of the people who are appearing, um, they are an exact mirror of your vibration. And when you get that, that actually, when you start to shift your vibration and your energy around money, that's when you can start to get different results. And a lot of people have trouble taking that on board.